Welcome to Based Liberty. I'm your host, Darren Wisely. I'm not politically correct, and I'm not afraid of the consequences for the things I say. I'm simply here to speak the truth as I see it from where I'm standing and let the chips fall where they may. Welcome to Based Liberty, fellow thought criminal. What's going on, thought criminals? Welcome to Based Liberty, episode 73. I'm your host, Darren Wisely, and I'm just thrilled to be with you today. I want to say thanks to you guys for keeping me sane and sticking together. I notice the Karens are getting awfully quiet out there. And while I'm generally optimistic, we're definitely not out of the clear yet. For example, you have over 300 colleges requiring vaccines to attend class. I mean, just think about how ridiculous that is. But I really don't want to go down that tangent right now. I actually did write an article about that at Mises.org. And I have the link to that on my website, BasedLiberty.com, if you want to check that out. So today's episode, if it doesn't just completely piss you off, I don't know what to tell you. The outright corruption and depravity is worse than I thought. And that's saying something. We've known that something's rotten in Denmark because we aren't brainwashed, we use basic logical reasoning, and we know nothing has just added up. Not to mention our bullshit detectors are pretty good. (laughs) But you're going to get some more facts today that show you just how insane this globalist agenda is. And the people pushing it have no problem at all sacrificing who knows how many human lives to make sure everyone gets poked. I really don't have any other way to describe it. It is pure evil. But hey, if you want to reach more people, support this show. I'm working hard to bring you guys these facts in light of the constant censorship and attacks from all these trust the science morons. You can go to my website, basedliberty.com, name of the show, and support on my Anchor or Patreon pages. Just two bucks a month gets you in the Thought Criminal community, helps keep us going, helps us reach more people. We need every method, every avenue we can to get the truth out there when you look at the size and money behind what we're up against. And those of you who already are, well, you're putting your money where your mouth is because you believe in freedom. And for that, I truly do greatly appreciate it. So today's show, I was listening to this video And it was an interview with Dr. McCullough. He's a practicing internist and cardiologist and professor of medicine at Texas A&M College of Medicine. And there were just so many things that stuck out to me. And I said, you know what, I got to get this information out here. And this guy's no joke. He's He's been broadly published on a range of topics in medicine, over a thousand publications. He's got over 35 peer-reviewed publications on covid and has commented extensively on the medical response to COVID-19. On November 19, 2020, he did testify in the U.S. Senate, day after my birthday, (laughs) um, concerning early uh, treatment of high-risk patients. So the thing that really interests me in this interview is how much effort the Ferengis up there put into stifling information that goes against their narrative. Now, we know the censorship on Facebook, things like that, what the mainstream media pushes, but 
behind the closed doors, the things we don't see, it's even worse than we thought. The lengths they're going through to make sure that the only option is to get this vaccine. So you're going to learn all about that today. I'm going to go through some big points in this video, provide some commentary. The whole video is an hour, 45 minutes long, but if you're interested in this, you want to see the whole thing, I encourage you to watch it because it's very, very telling. Start with just the treatment protocols. And, you know, this episode, I'm not going to get into all the things about, all the details about how hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, vitamin D, these kind of remedies, how successful they've been because I've done, I've talked about them in other episodes. Of course, Dr. Trozzi explained all of that to us, um, which was an awesome discussion. I really enjoyed that, and check that out if you haven't. But this is, episode is going to be more focused on just the way they're stifling information and how all roads lead to the vaccine. So let's get into it. What we learned is the average person sits at home for two weeks. There's no immediate lethality to the virus. In fact, we've got a long window of time to make a diagnosis organized treatment and prevent hospitalization and death. So SARS-CoV-2 was very different from uh, Ebola. But we look at other conditions uh, where we readily accept the fact that somebody can fall ill at home. But if we start treatment early with an infection, we can save the patient. That exists for community-acquired pneumonias. It occurs for various forms of staph infection, including staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome. It occurs for diverticulitis and um, abdominal conditions. Uh, it occurs for uh, skin infections, uh, various forms of cellulitis. It occurs for meningitis. If, for instance, if someone had a form of meningitis, we wouldn't say, listen, sit at home for two weeks. And then if you're really, really bad and you're having seizures and you can't even breathe anymore, then come in the hospital and we'll start treatment. So the different unique aspect of the medical response to SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 was for the first time we had an infectious disease where the medical community settled into a groupthink. And this was supported by the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, the American Medical Association, all the medical societies. It was supported by these societies to tell doctors, don't touch this virus. Let patients stay at home. Let them get as sick as humanly possible. And then when they can't breathe anymore, then go to the hospital. In fact, it was shocking October 8th when the National Institutes of Health came out with their first set of treatment guidelines. Because prior to that, none of this... And the first set of guidelines said, you get sick at home, don't do anything. Don't do anything. Come into the hospital when you really can't breathe. Still don't do anything until a patient needs oxygen. Then start doing something. Like, then actually give the first antiviral drug, which was remdesivir. Well, that's 14 days after the virus had already started replicating. By that time, the virus is long gone. When people can't breathe, the problem is micro blood clotting in the lungs. So the the federal agencies, the CDC, the NIH, and FDA, <clears throat> were enormously inept in terms of perceiving what this problem Surprise. was. Incredibly inept in uh, applying any type of judgment or direction to doctors. Listens, it's a blunder by health response. Interesting, the point how if you had COVID, they basically told you to just sit home and wait it out. When if you would have gotten 
one of these medications, it probably could have been stopped right in the beginning. But they tell you to sit home, only go in the hospital when it gets too bad. Well, at that point, it's too late. And he's going into that a little bit more here. For example, every form of pneumonia known to man does better if treated early, even influenza. And that's the reason why uh, Tamiflu, as an example, and there's an analogous product, are FDA approved for the treatment of influenza. They have some partial effect. Now, do we ever use Tamiflu alone? No, we typically combine it with other drugs to get patients through the illness. There are supportive respiratory drugs. There are forms of inhalers, what's called beta agonist inhalers and steroid inhalers. We use those liberally in forms of emphysema, uh, 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 pneumonia, asthma, allergic pneumonitis. There's other things that we can do to help patients get through the syndrome. The, the uh, inflammatory nature of the syndrome became uh, uh, very interesting. We understand that antihistamines, as an example, Montelukast, uh, aspirin, uh, um, uh, uh, steroids, corticosteroids, play an important role. If I had an as asthmatic at home, I wouldn't say, listen, sit at home for two weeks until you can't breathe anymore and then go into the hospital. Are you kidding me? I'd put that asthmatic on inhalers. I probably would use some empiric antibiotics in that uh, patient and then some steroids, and I'd prevent the hospitalization to the best I could. So I approached COVID-19 respiratory illness like any other with the following thought, and we had pretty quickly put together our approach based on other precedents, including influenza, including asthma, including bacterial pneumonia, as follows, that this was going to be amenable to risk stratification. Those under age 50 who had no pulmonary symptoms, they could simply ride through the illness. So I've had pneumonia a couple of times, and I understand exactly what he's saying. You know, you go in, you get a Z-pack, two or three days later, you're feeling better, but the longer you wait on these kind of things, the worse they get. And when you put it off too long, that's when things get bad. And that's exactly what went on here uh, with COVID. When they told people to go home and then they didn't really treat them, they just go in and lie in a hospital bed. So now Dr. McCullough is talking about some of these treatments that could have saved a lot of people. To suggest that favipiravir, like oral remdesivir, would play a role early on. And it was readily approved by five countries FDA approved, FDA equivalent approved in those countries to treat COVID-19. So we had hydroxychloroquine, we had ivermectin, favipiravir. We combine it with either doxycycline or azithromycin. Those are antibiotics Americans know about. They get inside of cells. They also intracellular anti-effectives, and they were slightly assistive in a couple ways. They cut down on some of the bacterial superinfection that would occur in the sinuses and respiratory tract. And we knew from some studies that there was about a 3% overlap between COVID-19 and what's called atypical pneumonias, which would be mycoplasma, chlamydia, pneumonia. Uh, and these would also be responsive to these. So quickly, hydroxy and azithro, uh, 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 ivermectin and doxy, these were a, a common, uh, favipiravir and doxy outside the United States, became common intracellular anti-infectives. But those alone didn't carry the day because what happened is the viral replication tipped off what's called cytokine storm or the immune system going haywire. And so doctors early on in the hospital started using steroids, and we had some confusing... So once again, let's look at this, quote, guidance <laughs> they're giving, which is really just stay at home and then go to the hospital to die. To me, it was stunning that the academic medical centers or even the large community centers 
couldn't help a single outpatient. They couldn't even provide a patient brochure of what should be done. Uh, the CDC offered guidance like take some uh, Tylenol, and if you get really sick, go to the hospital. The, the response to an, a treatable outpatient problem that gave us two weeks of opportunity to do something, the lack of that anemic, the, the lack of that response was, was stunning. And it, it had to do, in my view, because of a whole timeline of events that put a chill on the attempts to treat COVID-19. The doctors in health systems and others, I think, in a relatively short order, became actively discouraged from treating COVID-19. I can tell you, I never got a, an encouraging email or phone call saying, you know what, do the best you can for your patients. Try to help them. These hospitalizations are terrible. Please, we support you in using your best judgment. Or here's a few suggested things that you could do. I never got any of those emails from medical societies, uh, from others. In fact, there was only one medical organization, just like there's you know, a few courageous medical doctors. There was one courageous medical organization. Very, very interesting. The whole community doesn't put any effort into trying to treat COVID. Instead, it's waited out until you're hospitalized. Well, we know once it gets to that level, it's pretty much a death sentence. And you're not even getting... The treatments that could help you there. So with that in mind, why was things that could make a real difference, like hydroxychloroquine, stifled? We had used it in pregnancy. We knew all of its um, uh, safety profile. Doctors knew how to use hydroxychloroquine. I use a mechanism for that. It's under emergency circumstances. That wouldn't apply to hydroxychloroquine. It was already fully FDA approved. It was out for 65 years. It was safe. We had used it in pregnancy. We knew all of its um, uh, safety profile. Doctors knew how to use hydroxychloroquine. I used it in my practice. It was just not a big deal. It didn't need an EUA. But so the EUA went out on hydroxychloroquine and said, you know, this EUA with language in it says restricting hydroxychloroquine to inpatient use. Okay. And so uh, one of the first big studies out of the block was done in thousands of patients out of uh, Henry Ford. And it was great news that hydroxychloroquine was associated with a large reduction in mortality uh, if applied early. But the later it was applied in the hospital stay, it didn't look mm. like patients were too far gone. I wrote the um, uh, 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 response to that in several um, uh Publications across the. Uh... So hydroxychloroquine works when used early. But what they've been pushing is the exact opposite. Still have not had a doctor in any position of authority in the United States who's actually ever seen a patient with COVID 19 and treated them. Wow. None. It is extraordinary what's happened. So President Trump mentioned hydroxychloroquine. Let's try to give it a shot. And then immediately he was bashed down by his detractors. I thought it was a very weak statement to begin with, but he was bashed down. And people have always held him up as, oh, it was Trump. If he hadn't mentioned hydroxychloroquine, none of this would have happened. I disagree. I think that um, there was an enormous effort to suppress or suppress early treatment. Hydroxychloroquine was the initial lightning rod. Remember I mentioned that NIH trial? You know what they did after 20 patients? Disingenuous. And NIH is uh, Fauci's joint, by the way. 
They said they couldn't find COVID-19 patients and they shut down a several thousand patient trial. They shut it down after 20 patients. That never happens. They purchased the placebo. They found the study centers. They had the binders. They had the nurses hired. They had everybody ready to treat Americans with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, and they gave up after 20 patients. That was extraordinary. The false paper published in Lancet was extraordinary. We started to have an array of incredibly um, uh, flawed papers publishing exaggerating cardiac effects of hydroxychloroquine. Oh, it could cause dangerous arrhythmias. Uh, there was one that I mentioned in my U.S. Senate testimony. It came from the Mayo Clinic. It said hydroxychloroquine could cause a scar in the heart. They actually they had a heart that showed a huge white scar. In fact, I ultimately hunted down that paper, hunted down the authors and the publisher, and I demanded a retraction. Ultimately, I got a conciliatory letter published saying, you know what, we're, we're sorry, it doesn't really cause a scar in the heart. So people started to intentionally try to damage hydroxychloroquine so it would not be used in COVID-19. Yet other countries held with it steadfast. I mentioned all the countries to this day that use hydroxychloroquine. And now we have studies, for instance, a study from Iran in 30,000 patients a massive study, and they treat about 25% of people appropriately, hydroxychloroquine in combination with other drugs, and it has a massive reduction in mortality. So hydroxychloroquine is a mainstay. The prospect of randomized trials, if we just isolate on them, pre-hospital study. So I think you can start to see the conspiracy come together here, stopping the trials after only 20 uh, patients and falsifying peer-reviewed journals. That's not an easy thing to do. These people went to great lengths to demonize hydroxychloroquine as well as other treatments that could actually help people. This is not just incompetence. Uh, If only we were as free as Iran, apparently, and could use where they were using hydroxychloroquine. Now, just to give you an example, I'm going to skip to this part. This is this is pretty wild in a real-life example of Dr. McCullough being able to use these treatments firsthand and it actually working. We have uh, a group think, and doctors want intellectual right decisions. And what happened was, with the pandemic, all of our meetings were dissolved, We could not meet with each other anymore. There wasn't a chance to have much intellectual support. And each doctor, one by one, had to make a decision. When the next patient called and said, listen, I'm sick with COVID-19, can you help me? There was a binary choice. The choice was, no, I'm not going to help you. Nothing works. There's nothing I can do. Just wait until you get hospitalized. Or the answer could be, you know what, let me try. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that binary choice was the biopsy of who really had courage and who really had excellent clinical judgment. And doctors who were not confident in their clinical judgment quickly said, you know what, there's nothing you can do. And they got into that group think. And that could have been 90% plus of doctors had a, a lack of clinical judgment and a lack of courage. And what I found in this whole thing is those two things are I think we found that out too. It was just very natural. It was very natural. Courage and judgment. No way. My father was one of the first nursing home COVID 19 patients in Dallas. He was the very first one at Presbyterian Village. He got COVID 19, had a pelvic fracture. He's flat on his back. A scared PA says, Your dad's got COVID. He's in a unit. 
We don't know what's going to happen. His mortality being completely bedridden with dementia and now COVID, I can tell you he was facing an 80% mortality of just having COVID just ravage him. So what did I do? Did I make that binary decision of doing nothing? Of course not. Of course not. If I could ever message any American doctor or any doctor in the world right now, have some courage and trust your clinical judgment. I did. And that's what real doctors do. And I will never apologize for that. Of course, my dad was treated with hydroxychloroquine. He was treated with uh, azithromycin. He was treated with aspirin. We put him on Lovenox, uh, uh, is a blood thinner, uh, the full nutraceutical bundle, uh, uh, zinc, uh, vitamin C, vitamin D, quercetin. Open the windows. Get that virus aired out there. And he got really sick, as expected. Uh, he had dementia. His wishes were to not go to the hospital, not go on a mechanical ventilator. We treated him right there. It took 60 days, and it was a long illness. But he survived. Wow. And that was early. And that taught me that if I'm willing to do that for my father, I have a Hippocratic oath and I have a fiduciary responsibility to my patients. And I refuse to let my patients die of this illness. And when I testified in the U.S. Senate, I told the American people, I have always treated my high-risk patients, always. And at the end of my opening statement, I held up the protocol and I told the American people, I'm not asking for permission to do this. I'm not, but I'm asking for your help. That's a very, very important statement because my patients were appropriately treated to the best of my ability. And we have 600,000 dead Americans that were not treated appropriately and not treated to the best of the ability of their doctors. And that will go down in historical shame for our country. I think it's a travesty that we have 600,000 dead Americans. Not vast majority of them didn't get an ounce of treatment. In fact, there were medical groups that adopted policies that they weren't going to even answer the calls of COVID-19 patients. And there were millions of patients needlessly hospitalized. We had data that came in later from Dr. Zelenko in New York City, Dr. Proctor here in Dallas, who did the same exact thing, showing that our methods could reduce hospitalization and death by 85%. And I'm sorry, there are no prospective randomized trials of four to six drugs. There are none, none planned. So you could hear him kind of get choked up there. Dementia patient, nursing home dad, was able to recover with these treatments. Think about how many people could have had the same fate if these doctors were a bunch of cowards and we didn't have these corrupt people, Gates, Fauci, Zuckerberg, stifling information on Facebook, if all these clowns on social media, clowns is too nice. I mean, they're crooks. And I hope the history books aren't favorable. But we all know history, as Napoleon said, is a set of lies agreed upon. So it's up to us to keep pushing the truth so this history doesn't get whitewashed. But this is criminal, and it should disgust you, quite frankly. So with that, I think I think that last story really hammers the point home about how these treatments are real 
and they could make a difference. So I'm going to go to later in the conversation, he's talking about the global suppression of treatments like hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, etc. A monoclonal undid their emergency use authorized by the U.S. FDA. How come America has no window to that? How come there's no updates on how we're doing with that? How come there's no 1-800 numbers, how sick patients can't find out where these antibodies are? So it is a global suppression of early treatment, whether they're generic drugs or newly approved drugs. There is a global suppression on early treatment. Americans will know. They watch the TV every night. The initial dialogue was, we're scared, wear a mask, go in lockdown, hand sanitizer, okay? Then there were some reports about terrible things going on in the hospital. Then the reports later on were, wait for a vaccine. There were never regular reports or updates from any local or national TV source that gave regular updates. This is what you should do when you get COVID-19 at home. Here are the drugs at work. Here are the protocols. Here are the hotlines so you can get an antibody infusion, which is approved by the FDA. Here are the hotlines so you can get in research. Research is important. There's still no hotline for Americans to get in COVID-19 research at a state or a federal level. Stunning. There's been no updates. When I've dealt with multiple congressional and Senate offices, I said, listen, weekly updates to the American people so they know what to do so they're not so in fear when they're getting these results. Weekly updates through all public channels, weekly updates on treatment, and then monthly updates to the guidelines. So you know how this vax is being pushed everywhere you turn? Well, there's something about this whole advertising process I wasn't even aware of, and I think it might interest you. For products to actually be officially advertised, they have to have somebody who's going to pay for the ad, which is a drug company, and they have to be FDA approved. And they actually have to have an FDA advertising label. And because of the monoclonal antibodies, as an example, don't have an advertising label, uh, they can't be, uh, Lilly and Regeneron can't go out and advertise for them. But because they're EUA, from a public health messaging perspective, they should be equally featured as vaccines. Now, vaccines are emergency use authorized. All we hear about is vaccines morning, noon, and night. Why do we hear, why do we hear a massive messaging about vaccines? Americans ought to think about this. Why are vaccines featured by the CDC, NIH, and FDA morning, noon, and night, by the media morning, noon, and night, by every medical center morning, noon, and night, I can tell you as a doctor in medical center, all our emails are about vaccination. Um, why are they featured uh, in every single public uh, health communication, needles in all the arms? In fact, shockingly, in the Dallas area, in October, this is long before the vaccine trials were ever completed. Uh, if you were to call CVS or Walgreens, the answering machine would say, we're proud to offer the COVID-19 vaccine when it comes available. We have never advertised for a product before it comes available. In fact, it's against the uh, U.S. laws regarding drugs and biological products. So things started to go off the rails very early on, and it seems like there was a playbook. The playbook was to suppress any hope of treatment, a complete oblivion to treatment through all the entities that we've mentioned, And at the same time, prepare the population for mass vaccination. 
Yep. These two are very tightly linked. And now with mass vaccination, we have see things we have never seen. Advertising the vaccine before it's even available. Massive messaging for the vaccine far out of proportion to treatment. You have two EUA products one you never hear about. Americans would, are starved of these monoclonal antibodies. In fact, they're grossly underused. They could have saved probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives, and they're being squashed. The Lilly and Regeneron products were squashed, but the Pfizer, Moderna, uh, uh, and J&J products are being massively uh, promoted and, and advertised. Uh, uh, Americans ought to be kind of wondering why, why is that happening why are we defocusing on the sick patient and focusing on well people all the messaging about contagion control and vaccines are about well people why can we not focus on the sick covid patient that was my message to the department and health and human services uh in texas but it goes further than that it goes further than that the vaccine registrational trials strictly excluded pregnant women women of uh, childbearing potential covid recovered patients patients who had prior COVID antibodies, strictly excluded them. By regulatory science, if all the registrational trials excluded a group of patients, we would never use that product in that group once it gets on the market. Never. Never. We never violate that. Why? Because we don't know if it's going to work, and we don't know if it's going to be safe. We never do that. There's another level. With pregnant women, our special group in research and medicinal products. It's very important for Americans to know this. In pregnant women, for vaccination, we only vaccinate with safe, inactive products. Inactive flu, tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. That's it. We would never inject a biologically active substance in a pregnant woman's body. That could be dangerous. Never. And with the vaccines, as soon as they came out, the CDC, FDA, media, everybody said... Vaccinate them. Wow. Vaccinate them. That's pretty sick right there. But, I mean, that's that's what I've said all along about these vaccines, is if they're so great, they're so safe, why do they need to be advertised literally at every turn? Uh, you would think they're giving you eternal life, right? The fountain of youth or something. But So, to me, just from a logical perspective, something's off there. But, I mean, you know, that's why it's cool getting his kind of behind-the-scenes perspective because you just know it's so much worse than we thought. And there's just so many people, and you just can't trust them. These people are sociopaths. We quickly realized we need three or four or five drugs. Everyone understands this. With COVID-19, I never thought a single drug was going to work. Hydroxychloroquine? No, not alone, but in combination. And it was that thinking. It takes kind of hundreds and hundreds of trials. We even have large randomized trials. I've published with Dr. Uh, Joe uh, Ladapo, only prospective randomized controlled trials show benefit. So at every level, we meet the evidence grade to use hydroxychloroquine. At every level, we meet the evidence grade to use ivermectin. Not so much evidence, but good enough in the monoclonal antibodies. We have the same for steroids. The, the biggest and best trial in all of COVID-19 is cold corona. I mentioned with colchicine. Shockingly, Cold Corona, the best trial, 4,000 patients, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial, the best quality that exists, rejected by New England Journal of Medicine, mm. rejected by JAMA, rejected by Lancet. There is a global suppression on any early treatment. I want the listeners to understand how global this is. If we were to go north into Canada, doctors are threatened 
that their licenses will be examined or take away if they attempt to treat an outpatient with COVID-19. They are told this in Canada. Um, in uh, Northern EU, the same is true. Dr. Didier Rialt, uh, who is trying to innovate with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in France in period times, has been under degrees of uh, threat of arrest or partial arrest or house arrest, okay? Almost as if we're back in the uh, dark ages. In Australia... Feels like that. In April, they put on the books in Queensland, Australia, a doctor who tries to help a patient with hydroxychloroquine could be penalized up until the point of going into jail for six months for helping in South Africa. They put some doctors in jail for trying to help patients. And we know that's the case in Canada because we heard Dr. Trozzi say the same thing. It really is global, and it's wild just how lockstep they're all working together in. Think about that. Thrown in jail for trying to help a patient? Wow. So we're getting to the end of the parts I wanted to show you guys, and he's kind of tying it all together now with the motives. To make the problem worse than what it is, many methods to make the case count look higher than what it is make the mortality numbers look worse than what they are. Many methods to create the reaction out of proportion to the reality, so lockdowns, fears, economic suffering, what have you. All of these things making the pandemic way worse than what it is, okay, to to have that occur. More fear, suffering, hospitalization, death, loneliness, lockdown, in order to promote mass vaccination. These two are tightly linked. Now, mass vaccination, at all costs, the world must be mass vaccinated and, and, and human beings on earth ought to understand at this point in time, what we're seeing is unprecedented. It became known the virus was going to be amenable to a vaccine uh, somewhere around April, May. At that point in time, therapy was suppressed. Everything, nothing could be published. Everything, the fake Lancet paper, squash treatment and then prepare the population for vaccination. Once the vaccines come out, they're, they're, they're short-tracked. Um, uh, there's all kinds of enthusiasm uh, regarding it, you, you know, uh, um, uh, needles in all the arms, trucks rolling, Americans cheering, and then the mass vaccination program starts off. And then before we know it, you know, we're vaccinating pregnant women. Why are we doing that? That that's, can't be safe. Now we're going to vaccinate COVID recovery patients. Wait a minute. They, they have complete and robust permanent immunity. No one's ever challenged the immunity of a COVID recovery patient. Why are we vaccinating them? And there's your answer right there. Vaccination at all costs. Everyone gets a needle in their arm. Why? Because the Ferengis at the top, the corrupt sociopaths that they are, said so. And so many people are cowards and spineless and just brainwashed. Oh, the TV said so, so I guess we're going to do it. Wow. The immunity of a COVID recovery patient, why are we vaccinating them? And then it keeps going and going. At first, we vaccinated, uh, it's estimated maybe 20 million people need to be vaccinated. But that didn't seem to satisfy the vaccine stakeholders, which are Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, AstraZeneca, and any others that come forward, the CDC, the FDA, and the NIH, and the White House. Massive vaccine stakeholders. You could throw in Gates Foundation, World Health Organization. You think? You could throw those in as well. Massive stakeholders, and they wanted 
everybody to be vaccinated without exception. No one will escape the needle. We've actually never had this before. And the vaccine process is extraordinary. There's a consent form. It says this is investigational. We don't know if it's going to work. There's only two months of data. The, the side effects could be a sore arm all the way to death. And we don't know. Sign here. We need your identifying information. We need a barcode on the vial. We need you identified. And now you're in a database. You're vaccinated. And so this mass vaccination is extraordinarily concerning. We never vaccinate into the middle of a pandemic. Never. We've never had an effective vaccine for respiratory virus, including influenza. It's only modestly effective. We knew from the published data that the attack rates in placebo and the vaccine arms were less than 1%. So we know that the vaccine can have a less than 1% effect in the population. Why would it be any different than the clinical trials? Um, uh, we knew from the from the clinical trials that it didn't stop COVID-19, so people can get COVID-19 anyway. What would be this incredible drive to vaccinate everybody? And now, oh my lord, now um, the vaccine within a few months has been completely weaponized. Now travel is related to the vaccine. People can't go to school without the vaccine. People are losing their jobs without the vaccine. Believe me, there is something very, very potent in this vaccine. It should be disturbing to everybody. The word vaccine ought to be the most disturbing word that they have seen. Now we have 12-year-old oh, children who are told they can decide on their own whether or not they could take a vaccine. So, you know, about 70% of my patients are vaccinated. I'm very pro-vaccine. I've taken all the vaccines myself, about 70%, and they were all vaccinated in December, January, and February. But as we sit here today in May, we have over 4,000 vaccine-related deaths wow. and over 10,000 hospitalizations. The limit to shut down a program is about 25 to 50 deaths. Swine flu, 1976, 25 deaths, they shut down the program. It's not safe. The whole, All the vaccines in the United States per year, what Ambulate gets reported in the database, is about 200. And we're talking about vaccinating probably, probably you know, 500 million injections. Here... In the United States, at 100 million people vaccinated, this is far and away the most lethal, toxic, biologic agent ever injected into a human body in American history. And it's going strong, with no mention of safety by our officials, with wild enthusiasm by our hospitals and hospital administrators, with doctors supporting it. Doctors are saying now they won't see patients in their waiting room without the vaccine. This problem, COVID-19 was actually from the very beginning. That's what Whitney Webb said. She goes, COVID-19 is actually about the vaccine. It's not about the virus. It's about the vaccine. I think it's about what the vaccine means. And Whitney Webb gets credit for this back in April. She said, aha, I figured this out. This is what state, This is what globalists have been waiting for. They've been waiting for a way of marking people. That you get in a vaccine, you're marked in a database. And this can be used for um, trade for commerce, for behavior modification, all different purposes. And you've seen it right here in Dallas. They've announced, uh, you know, you can't go to a Dallas Mavericks game unless you're vaccinated. You've had people say, listen, you have uh, passports. You had colleges today announce that they're not going to give any credit to natural immunity. Every scientist in the world knows that the natural immunity is way better than the vaccine immunity. If it's about COVID, why don't we have COVID recovered go to the Mavericks games? Why don't we have COVID recovered people freely go to college? Exactly. Well, why do we why do we have to have faulty uh, vaccine immunity be the priority 
and have natural immunity not count. See, these types of things make me think that Whitney Webb is correct. This is actually about marking. The vaccine is a way of marking people. It's a way of starting to assert uh, efforts to create compliance, behavior control. Don't forget, the vaccine is just a starter. Now there's going to be updates. There's going to be boosters. They're already prepping people for this. There's going to be more. The vaccine manufacturers are all linked. They're all uniquely indemnified. What medical product is there indemnification where something happens to you, you don't have any recourse? You know, a woman gets vaccinated, pregnant woman. She has no maternal fetal rights. Something happens to her or her baby. She's out of luck. This is extraordinary what Americans are doing. It's absolutely extraordinary what's being uh, thrust upon us now. So go ahead. Let's hear your best argument for getting the vax. Go ahead. Push it on me. <laughs> Man, that is some dark stuff. And I mean, that's coming from world-renowned doctor. I mean, I'm I'm glad he's willing to step up because over 90% of them, at least according to him, are too coward to do so. <laughs> it's just crazy. I mean, I do not get how people don't see this. I mean, you got to share this with your friends. you got to let people know. I thought he summed it up really well right there. It's not about COVID. It's about the vaccine. It's about global control. These people aren't looking out for us. I mean, I hope you figured that out by now. But I just don't get how these sheep can sit there and listen to these people, you know. It's just so wild that people can't just put these basic things together. But... You know, oh, I saw my favorite celebrity get it. Or they see these politicians and, you know, bureaucrats getting it. How do you know it's not water in the stupid needle, you know? I mean, Bill Gates' uh, body isn't exactly what I'm aiming for. I don't know about you. but uh, <sighs> So, sorry I know this went over today, but I thought there was just so much good information. And I tried to kind of keep it to the points that haven't really been discussed much in detail on the show. I mean, a lot of this was new to me. I mean, it, it kind of uh, supported positions I had, but it, it came from a real new perspective that, yes, this really is intentional suppression going on. It's not just fear or incompetence. It's an agenda, and it's about control. And honestly, we don't know <laughs> what the long-term plan is, and it, it it's going to be scary. That's why... We got to wake people up, you know, just taking the mask off, you know, that's a great first step, but that's like the first step on a 12 step program. We got a long ways to go because these people will do anything. And we've seen it. How many people have died that could have been saved by getting some kind of treatment? How many, and then of course the, the economic devastation, they didn't care about suicides, substance abuse, finding business owner. I mean, there's nothing they won't do. There's nothing they won't do, and we just saw that. What they will do is what they can get away with. So that's why we still got a ways to go. But yeah, hopefully you enjoyed uh, that video, and uh, thanks for tuning in. I'm, I'm glad there are some people who get it out there, and we just got to get more on our side. We don't have to have everyone. We don't even have to have half the people, but we have to have enough. Think about the American Revolution, right? We just have to have enough that are willing to stand and say, this is the line in the sand, and you're not going to cross it. So I'm thankful for you guys. Thanks for listening, and I uh, hope you enjoyed that. A little different format, and uh, take care. We'll talk soon. What is democracy? What is democracy? Got something to do with young men killing each other. When it comes to my turn.
for democracy. Any man would give his only begotten son. 